You guys can have a seat as you turn to Matthew chapter 21. We'll be in a number of passages this morning. While you're turning to Matthew 21, I did want to clarify. Next week you should bring your palm frond, not froms, contra my good friend Chris McGuffey, (laughs) who I've clarified that with, frond with a D. Love to have you guys preparing yourselves for Palm Sunday next week. We're taking these next three weeks, so today and next Sunday and the Sunday after, to focus on Easter. So this is kind of an Easter series that we're doing these three weeks. We're going to think about what Easter means. We're going to think about what the death and resurrection of Jesus means. This is our most important holiday. This is bigger than Christmas. When you think theologically, Christmas Jesus came. That's great news. But on Easter, he died for you and rose from the dead. That's much better news, bigger news. So as we prepare for Easter over these next three Sundays, we are going to get into some heavier theology, try to really understand who Jesus is, what he did. But it's not just to help you guys grow in knowledge. Ultimately, what these three weeks are about is to help you better appreciate who Jesus is and what he did so that you will feel greater motivation to tell someone about him. Because here's the deal. These next two weeks, as you get ready for Easter, this is really the only time of the year when you can tell a neighbor or a classmate or a coworker about Jesus dying for them and rising for the dead and it not being weird. Because it's Easter. Everybody wants to know, hey, what's going on with Easter? What are you doing? You can easily talk about what the holiday is about, and the holiday is all about the gospel. So you get like this free period for these next two weeks to talk to people around you about the good news of Jesus Christ. We want to inspire you to do that. We want to challenge you to be bold and courageous these next two weeks, telling the people around you what this is all about. Okay, so as Guff and uh, Julie talked about earlier this morning, we have these three Sundays. We also have Good Friday service. We have a lot of opportunities for you to bring someone, but don't just do that. Also talk to people about why you celebrate, what you're telling your kids, what you're doing with your kids. Use this opportunity, this incredible gift we have. Let me especially encourage you, if you live next to or go to school with or work with somebody from another country, they may not have grown up with Easter in their culture. So you may get an opportunity to introduce them for the first time to the story that we celebrate. So please be bold and courageous over these next two weeks. You have an incredible opportunity to talk to people about Jesus. So that's what we will be doing over the next three Sundays. All three Sundays we'll be looking at a relatively short period in Jesus's life on earth, his last week. It's also often called his his Passion Week. It leads up to to his passion on the cross when he died and then rose from the dead. So all three Sundays we'll be looking at this last week of Jesus's life. And if you want to understand the the arc of Jesus's last week of life on earth, you need look no further than this last week for the Virginia Cavaliers basketball team. They had a very similar week. It was a very good week to be in with. Because they, they, they had an incredible season, 32 or 31 and 2 on the season, and they won their conference title handily. And then on Monday, just six days ago, they were unanimously voted the number one team in the country. Not just the number one seed of the tournament, but the number one team. Lots of people had them picked to win the whole thing. And then the Retrievers showed up. And I didn't even know that there was like a Retrievers basketball team. I didn't know that that was a thing. I had never heard of them. This little 16 seed University of Maryland, Baltimore County showed up and did what no 16 seed had ever done. 
They beat a number one seed and not by a little. They crushed him. It was embarrassing, a 20-point victory. And so now, think about what it's like for the Virginia basketball team. They went from number one in the country at the beginning of the week to the team no one will ever forget for losing the biggest upset ever in basketball history. By the end of the week, it was just a crash of a week. That's Jesus' last week. It begins in triumph. It ends in tragedy. That's the art that we are going to see in Jesus' last week of life. So let's begin with the triumph towards the beginning of Jesus's week. Look with me at Matthew chapter 21 and let's pick up the story in verse 6. The disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed them and brought the donkey and the colt and laid their coats on them. And he sat on the coats and most of the crowd spread their coats in the road and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them in the road. The crowds going ahead of him and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred saying, who is this? So the week begins in triumph. This is Monday. So last week of Jesus' life. This was what happened on Monday. Jesus entered the city of Jerusalem as a conquering king. That's what this kind of weird ceremony is about, riding on the colt of a donkey. That was an Old Testament prophecy about how the king would arrive in Jerusalem. And they put their coats on the donkey and then on the ground and the, and the fronds and all that kind of stuff out for Jesus. And as he goes by, they're celebrating and they're worshiping. His followers are proclaiming this is the king, the son of David. And so if you're trying to picture what does this look like, it's like what we would call a ticker tape parade. When when people who are being celebrated are going down the center of the city. This is like the Astros coming back to Houston after winning game seven. Everybody wants to celebrate. And if you're keeping score, that is two sports-related metaphors in one sermon. You may never get that from me again, just so you know. So there you go this morning. I didn't watch either game, but I I read about them. So (laughs) there you go. (laughs) So working on the cars, went in and read. Okay. So... As the Astros came into the city, everybody's watching. There's pictures of people like up in the high rises looking down and watching. And that's what the city of Jerusalem is doing. Everyone is watching. Everybody wants to know what is going on. This is incredible. This is amazing. And so Jesus is the most famous person in the city. There's this incredible triumph at the beginning of the week. But then the wheels come off. By the end of the week, turn to Matthew chapter 27. Look at how things change. Matthew 27 Just a few days later. Let's pick up the story in verse 22. Matthew 27, verse 22. Pilate, the political leader of the city of Jerusalem, said to them, that is the crowds and the Pharisees, what shall we do with Jesus, who is called the Christ? They all said, crucify him. And he said, why? What evil has he done? But they kept shouting all the more, saying, crucify him. So Friday, just a few days later, we see tragedy. A week that started in triumph ends in tragedy. The the Pharisees and the Romans demanding Jesus' crucifixion. They're going to execute him. Now, you know the good news. Three days later, Jesus is going to rise from the dead. But don't let that knowledge of the good news that's coming keep you from seeing the incredibly tragic turn of events that has happened in just one week. Jesus went from triumphant king entering the city to the tragedy of a criminal being executed. And how do you explain that? How do you go from one thing to its exact opposite? Why are his disciples worshiping him as king while the Pharisees and the Romans want to execute him as a criminal? 
Well, ultimately, the answer to that question has everything to do with how they answer the question we read at the end of that passage in Matthew 21. You may remember it. The whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? And how the disciples and the Romans and the Pharisees and the crowds answered that question, who is this Jesus? How they answer that question determines their response, whether they're going to worship him or crucify him. That is the most important question for them. It's the most important question for us as well. It is really the question of questions. Most important question anyone will ever answer because it determines your life now and forever. It shapes your eternal destiny. What do you think about Jesus? Who do you say that he is? So this morning, we're going to look at that for a little while. We're going to talk about what each of these different groups said about Jesus that led to their response, either worship or crucifixion. Let's start with the bad guys. So the Romans and the Pharisees who execute Jesus, how would they have answered this question? To the Romans and the Pharisees, who is Jesus? Well, at this point, by the end of Jesus's ministry, they had already heard him make some pretty big claims. Jesus talked like a king. He offered himself as king and and he spoke and he acted like a god like he revealed divine authority he he referred to himself as the son of god these incredibly high and mighty things so they heard him make big claims about being king and being divine but then they look at him and what do they see just a, a common ordinary jewish man actually a poor man A poor man from an insignificant family and an insignificant town that no one cared about. This poor average man, he he can't be a king. This doesn't look like any God we know. So the Pharisees conclude because he doesn't look like what we expect a king or a God to look like, well, he must be making it up. Well, in the Jewish religion, if you make up divine claims for yourself, that's called blasphemy. And by the first commandment of the Mosaic law, that means you must die. So for the Pharisees, Jesus has to die as a blasphemer. In the eyes of the Romans, they could care less about blasphemy. They don't care about Jewish religion. What they care about is law and order. And here comes this average Jewish man claiming to be king. That's a threat to law and order. That's a threat to social stability. The whole city is stirred up. Romans don't like it when a city is stirred up. They want things to settle down. So to the Romans, Jesus is an agitator who is dangerous to their law and order. And so they're willing to join with the Pharisees and execute him. Now, here's the key. If they were right, if Jesus really was just a blasphemer and and an agitator, then according to the laws of the first century, Jesus got exactly what he deserved. He, He wasn't a victim. He got exactly what he deserved if the Pharisees and Romans were right. And the key to recognize is with Jesus, there's no middle ground. You don't get to call Jesus just a good man. If he's just a good man claiming to be king and God, then he's a liar, he's a lunatic, and he doesn't deserve anything from you. You cannot call him a good man. He can't be. He is either everything he claimed to be or he is nothing. He is a liar or lunatic who doesn't deserve the time of day from you. So for the Romans and the Pharisees, they concluded, man, he's making it all up. He's a nut job. He deserves death. So they gave him what was logical, execution. But were they right? Well, let's think about what the disciples said about Jesus. These men and women who at the beginning of the week worshipped Jesus, 
who laid their coats down and proclaimed him as king, what did they believe about Jesus? Now, there's a lot of passages in the Bible that we could look to. They talk about Jesus' identity in many places. We're going to look at the book of John. So, John chapter 1. Go ahead and turn there. In, in John chapter 1, John does this neat thing for us. The whole book of John is designed to convince us that Jesus is who he claimed to be. That's the point of the book. In chapter 1, John just goes ahead and kind of takes the veil off and shows you, here's what Jesus claimed about himself. Here, here's who he is. And John reveals Jesus to us in the first chapter of his book with four titles, four very significant titles. And I want to walk you through them. Okay, these are, some of these are words you've heard a lot before, but maybe you don't really know what they mean when they refer to Jesus. So I'm going to walk you through these four titles for Jesus so we can understand what his disciples believed about him that led them to worship him. Okay, so title number one, we get right at the beginning of John chapter one in the first verse, in fact. Look at John one, verse one. It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So the first title we get for Jesus is the Word. And that's kind of weird sounding. Why would you call someone the Word? That's weird. Um, So what is a Word? Well, in the Bible, both the Old Testament and the New Testament, words are just what you think of them being. Words are sounds that communicate. So in the Bible, when we look at at how words work in the Bible, we find that there's two kinds of words in the Bible. Human words and God's words. Human words, nothing really special about them. What are your words? Well, your words are just sounds you make when your lungs blow air across your voice box and out your mouth. You make sounds that facilitate communication so other people can understand you, but there's nothing magical about them. That's very different than God's words. And both the Old Testament and the New Testament, God's words aren't just sound. God's words are power. God's words are authority in action. You see that at the very beginning. Genesis chapter 1. I don't know if you've ever thought about it. It's actually very remarkable how Genesis 1 describes the act of creation. And all other ancient creation myths, there's always like some god or gods doing something. Maybe they're hacking up something with a sword or they're forming and making something. In Genesis 1... The true story of creation, what does God do? He just speaks. And pop, whole universe comes into existence. God's words create out of nothing. God's words command the physical universe and it obeys. God's words are powerful enough to create. And in the second book of your Bible, Exodus, God's words are powerful enough to legislate. God speaks. He tells humanity, this is right behavior, this is wrong behavior, and instantly all of humanity becomes accountable to the law. So God's words aren't just sounds. They're God's power at work on earth to create, to legislate, to bless, to curse. That concept of God's word carrying innate power to create and to legislate, carrying God's own power, that leads the Apostle John to a conclusion. When we think about Jesus, who or what is Jesus? Ultimately, Jesus is God's ultimate word in human flesh. Jesus is the mighty revelation of God shown up in human flesh. He is God's words, the same words that spoke the universe into existence, that brought all of humanity under God's accountability. That same powerful word has taken on human flesh and is walking among us. So this title for Jesus, the word, is actually the biggest of them all. 
to put a star next to this one. This is the grandest of them all. This is claiming God's own authority, his own power to create, to legislate, to give life, to give blessing. John tells us a lot of things about the word, about Jesus. He says in verse 2, look with me, let's keep reading. He was in the beginning with God, meaning before the universe was created, Jesus already existed. This is important to clarify. Jesus didn't begin to exist on that first Christmas morning 2,000 years ago. He took on human flesh at that moment, but he has always existed. Okay, he is eternal with God the Father. Verse 3, all things came into being through him, and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being. That's a kind of hard to unpack phrase. What it means is that Jesus is the creator. Everything that has ever been created was created through Jesus. He is the one bringing about everything in Genesis chapter 1. Verse 4, in him was life, and the life was the light of men, meaning Jesus is the source of life. He is the author, the creator of all life. Jump down to verse 14. And the word, that is Jesus, he became flesh and he dwelt among us and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Point there is that Jesus in the flesh carried all the glory of God. He is equal to God the Father in every way. Now why would, why would this word take on flesh? Look at verse 18. He says, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten who is in the God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. John's point is that the reason Jesus took on human flesh and came to earth was to explain God to us, to, to reveal, just like words communicate, words reveal. So Jesus communicated, Jesus revealed what God is like, what God loves, what God does. How did he reveal that? Because he is God. And so you see in Jesus' words and actions, God speaking and acting. So this title, again, it's the biggest of them all. You cannot overstate the importance of calling Jesus the Word of God. It takes you all the way back to Genesis 1 and the Word of God bringing the universe into existence. Huge claim. Okay, so the disciples believe that Jesus is the Word of God, meaning he has all power and authority. Second title is pretty much the exact opposite. Look with me a little further down at verse 29. The next day he saw, he meaning John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. First title, word, that's all about power and authority. Second title, lamb. That is not powerful. There's nothing authoritative about a lamb. Think about a sheep, it's incredibly vulnerable. We have to have a shepherd protecting it because anything could, could kill it. Um, that's even more true of a lamb, like a, a little baby sheep. It literally has no way to defend itself. My daughter loves stuffed animals. She has so many that if I open her closet doors, they fall out. It's just we kind of fill it up. And a, a really surprising number of those stuffed animals are lambs. Why? Well, because in, in our culture, and really in all cultures, a lamb is the symbol of that which is soft, cute, and adorable. Okay, so the question that that begs for us is how did this figure who was just called the Word, like has all of God's power and authority that created the universe and defined right and wrong, how did that same person get associated with a title that means weakness and vulnerability? But it's because of the book of Exodus. Okay, shortly into the history of the Bible, in the book of Exodus, we find God's people, the Israelites, in slavery in the nation of, Is- in the nation of Egypt. 
And so God sends Moses to deliver them from slavery. And God gives Moses power to work signs, to to bring these plagues upon Egypt so that they will release the Israelites. And unfortunately, Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, does not listen to Moses. He does not listen to God. And so nine plagues come and, and none of them motivate him to let the Israelites free. And so God brings the final plague, the worst of them all, number 10, God sends the angel of death to put to death all firstborn sons. Problem was, the Israelites lived among the Egyptians. They all lived there together because the Israelites were their slaves. And so the question is, as the angel of death passes through Egypt, how will we protect these these firstborn Israelite sons? Well, God says you take a, a little lamb like that. Spotless, perfect, little symbol of vulnerability and innocence, and you kill it. And you take its blood and you paint it over the doorpost. And as a result, death will pass over you. You will not be affected by it. Well, that that happened historically, but it also became an object lesson for the Israelites. If you want to escape the punishment of death, death for sin, it requires a sacrifice. A sacrifice of, of a lamb. And so as the Old Testament continues to unfold God's revelation to us, we learn in the book of Isaiah that God is actually going to send a perfect lamb one day who will take away sin once and for all. The, the perfect lamb to outdo all other little lambs. In Isaiah chapter 53, it says, We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him, on Jesus, on the lamb, the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Isaiah is telling us that that Jesus is the final lamb of God. The once and for all sacrifice who would take away sin so that death would pass over us. So that we could be forgiven. Okay, so Jesus is this all-powerful, almighty, authoritative word. He is also this innocent, perfect, spotless lamb who would take away human sin. Third title that Jesus' disciples realize or recognize is true of him, we find in verse 41. Look at verse 41. He found first his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which translated means Christ. So we often call Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ. And, and some people misunderstand and think, well, Christ must be his last name. It's not. It's a title. It would be like when we say Queen Elizabeth. Queen isn't her first name. It's her position, her role, her title. Christ is Jesus's position, a role or title. And Christ is a Greek word that translates a Hebrew word, Messiah. And in that word Messiah, it appears throughout the Old Testament. Messiah in Hebrew, it means a person anointed by God for some special leadership role. And actually, if you read the Old Testament, you'll come to find out there were lots of messiahs. Jesus isn't the only one. Lots of messiahs throughout the Old Testament. All the kings of Israel were were messiahs in a sense. All the priests, all the prophets, all anointed by God for this special leadership role. The problem was... All those messiahs blew it. They gave in to sin. They gave in to pride and selfishness. And rather than bringing blessing to God's people, they brought a curse. 
And so, as the Old Testament continues, God eventually promises that one day he would send one final Messiah who would be perfect. Messiah with a capital M, who would not give in to his sin, to his pride, to his selfishness, who would instead serve the people so well that he would bring the fulfillment of all God's promises to them. And that's ultimately what the disciples mean when they call Jesus the Messiah. Not like all those messiahs with a little M in the Old Testament who blew it. We mean the one who would finally fulfill all of God's promises to us. So if you want to understand what did the disciples feel inside themselves when they called Jesus the Messiah, I want you to think for a moment about a time in your life when you waited and waited and waited for something you desperately wanted. Okay, for Julie and I, easy illustration that comes to mind is children. We struggle with infertility for years. And the problem with infertility is you're reminded every month that you're still struggling with it. Because pregnancy test comes back and says, nope, not yet. And so we waited and, and, and we grieved every time it came back with a no. And all that waiting, it just felt like this crushing weight upon us until one day after years of struggling... We got a call from a nurse who said, hey, your blood test came back positive. I was driving. I had to pull over because we were so elated with the good news. That is how a first century Jew felt when he heard the Messiah has arrived. The one who had been promised hundreds and hundreds of years before has finally come who will fulfill all of God's promises for you. This one has come who will fulfill all your hopes, all your dreams. So incredible amount of excitement when they hear that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the one who would fulfill all their hopes and dreams. Final title that we have here in John chapter 1, look at verse 49. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, meaning teacher, you are the son of God, you are the king of Israel. Now for us, when we hear that title, son of God, we tend to think like second member of the Trinity like actual literal son of God. And that, that's what the title comes to mean later in the New Testament. At this point in the Gospels, son of God, as you can see in this verse, just means king of Israel. So actually in, in the Old Testament, even King David, even King Solomon, they're called son of God. Why? Because they're God's representatives on earth to his people. Problem was, all of those other sons of God in the Old Testament, those kings of Israel, they all failed. Even David, greatest king until Jesus. He had some major failures in his life. They all failed. And so God's people suffered as a result. The line of the kings, it died out. It failed. The people ended up in exile. They ended up under Roman oppression. And in the midst of that pain, God promises, I will send you one last king, one final son of God who will rule perfectly forever. Unlike all those other kings, he will not give in to sin. Instead, he will rule Israel and the world for all time perfectly. That's what we're saying when we call Jesus the Son of God. You are the perfect king of Israel and of the whole earth. You will do what all those other kings failed to do. Okay, so when when we ask ourselves, why did the disciples take this public risk to lay out their cloaks on the road and exalt Jesus as king when all the Romans and Pharisees can see what they're doing. Why did they take that risk? Because they believed that Jesus is the Word and the Lamb and the Messiah and the Son of God who is King of Israel. And they recognized if all four of these titles are true about this man named Jesus, then he deserves our courageous worship. 
He deserves our complete devotion. He deserves that if this is true. What the disciples are reminding us again, there is no middle ground with Jesus. You don't get to stand at a distance and say, there goes a good man. No, it's impossible because of what he claimed. He claimed to be the word of God, who is the lamb of God, who is the Messiah and is the king of the whole world. And so if those claims are false, then he is a liar or a lunatic who has nothing to offer you. Don't give him anything. But if those claims are true, then he's not just a good man. He is your Lord who deserves everything from you. Again, there's no middle ground with Jesus. You either bow before him or you crucify him. Your pick. Now, if you have become convinced that these titles are true of Jesus, then what does it look like to give to him all of your devotion and all of your worship? Well, I would like to to show you by taking you to a, a beautiful story later in the book of John, John chapter 12, we are going to meet a young woman named Mary who shows us what logical worship looks like. If Jesus is really who he claimed to be, then this is how we should respond. So Mary is uh, arguably, I would say, the greatest single worshiper in the entire Bible. Incredible worshiper. Ironically, in a world that was heavily patriarchal, Mary is a single young woman. And yet she is the one who's going to teach the disciples and all of us what devoted worship to Jesus looks like. So let's look at her story in, in John chapter 12. Now, just so you know, she's going to do something. She's going to anoint his feet, which is weird to us, but back in their world, it symbolized great devotion. So that's what she's going to do. John chapter 12. Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they made him a supper there, and Martha was serving, but Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Mary then took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples who was intending to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to poor people? No, he said this, not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. Jesus said, Let her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For you will always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. Now there's a few things to know about what Mary does here. As Mary breaks this jar of perfume and anoints Jesus' feet, the first thing to know about Mary's worship is that it was incredibly expensive. We're told some details. This is pure nard. What is that? It doesn't, not around today. It was perfume they made in the ancient world by crushing aromatic herbs from northern India. It took an incredible amount of work, so it became very expensive. You would take the product and put it in alabaster jars. Uh, a family might have it, and it would potentially be the family's most valuable possession. Judas tells us that that jar was worth 300 denarii. One denarii is one day's wage for an average person. So in today's economy, that bottle of perfume was worth worth approximately $50,000. So Mary walks up with a $50,000 bottle of perfume that in every other household you would take it out only on very special occasions and you'd take like one drop and put it on the head of a dignitary or someone who had visited your house. And that would be enough. Everybody would know. They could smell it. It was incredibly strong fragrance. Mary doesn't put a drop on Jesus. She smashes it open. She puts it all on his feet. $50,000 of worship at the feet of Jesus. So this is an incredibly expensive act of worship. Second thing to know about it, it was scandalous. 
really scandalous in the ancient world. So Mary is a single young woman. Jesus is a single rabbi, male. It was not appropriate in their culture for a man and a woman to spend time together who were not related by blood or by marriage. So Jesus wasn't appropriate for him to have female disciples, and yet Mary walks right in, and and she walks right up to him, and then she does something even more scandalous. She lets her hair down. In that culture, you didn't do that, except around like maybe your husband or your dad. She lets her hair down. She takes her hair, and she wipes his feet, and all of the disciples are seeing this and feeling incredibly awkward. This is a scandalous act as she touches Jesus and lets her hair down. What they're thinking to themselves is, oh my gosh, Mary, you have lost it. Put yourself in their shoes for a moment. Let's say you're one of the men at the table and you're sitting around with Jesus and it's his final week. So man, things are heating up. I mean, you are in Jerusalem. It is the hotbed of all this political intrigue and and you're strategizing what is ministry going to look like this week? What are you going to do in the temple tomorrow, Jesus? Let's talk it through. And all of a sudden, this young single woman walks in on your male gathering and strategy session and she sits down at the feet of Jesus and she takes a $50,000 bottle of perfume. And she splashes it all on his feet. And then she lets down her hair, a scandalous act, and wipes his feet with her hair. And you're thinking to yourself, "Uh, Mary, you need to get a grip. People are going to talk about this. This looks really bad. This is crazy. Uh, But I'm not going to say anything because I'll let Jesus rebuke her. But what does Jesus do instead? Jesus said, this was right. This was good. Let her alone, meaning don't rebuke her. Instead, in other passages, it talks about Jesus says that this act is going to be joined to her name so that forever people will think of Mary as the greatest worshiper, as a person who is willing to lay everything at my feet. I was talking to a friend after the first service, and we were kind of thinking. Unfortunately, we don't have details to know how did Mary get a $50,000 bottle of perfume? She didn't have a job. Women weren't allowed to have jobs back then. So what was this? It is very possible that this was her dowry. So this is how you get a husband, Mary, and you just spilled it all at Jesus' feet. So, so much for that. She laid everything at his feet, and Jesus said, that is exactly right. And so what is amazing is that in this room of all of these eminent apostles, Peter, John, James, all of them sitting around who would write so much of your New Testament, this single young woman is the only person who gets it. She's the only person that understands if Jesus is really who he claimed to be, then he deserves absolutely everything that I can give. If Jesus is really who he claims to be, then a $50,000 bottle of perfume that was maybe how I get a husband is nothing compared to what he is worth. Mary lays everything at the feet of Jesus because, again, she realizes if he really is the word, who is the lamb, who is the Messiah, who is the king, then he deserves everything everything from us. There is no worship that is too great for Jesus if he really is who he claimed to be. So let me ask the question to you. The question we began with, who do you say Jesus is? When you look at your own life, your own relationship with God, how would you answer the question, who is Jesus to me? It may be that you're kind of still trying to figure that out, You're wrestling with that still. Maybe there's been something that has kept you from believing these titles about Jesus. Maybe this is the first time you've heard them. You're you're thinking about it. You're wrestling with it. What I want to do is is I want to ask you, what, what is keeping you from believing that all of this is true about Jesus? 
If, if just you, you don't yet know enough about him, you want to understand Jesus better, then let me give you a, a little bit of homework. I hope you'll let me do that. Let me encourage you, take this book we spent a lot of time in this morning, the book of John, and just keep reading it. So you got two weeks till Easter. It's not a long book. None of the books of the Bible are super long. Take the book of John and read it over these next two weeks and see what you think. The whole book of John is designed with one purpose in mind, to show you that Jesus is really who he claimed to be. So read the Gospel of John this week, and, and as you read it, if there's parts that you don't understand, or maybe there's parts that you object to and say, I just can't believe that, I, I just, I, I, don't, I don't think that's true, maybe it's an intellectual objection, maybe it's something in your past, let me encourage you to please come talk to me, or Guff, or Julie, or John Mark, anybody that you've seen this morning, we would love to talk with you about whatever's keeping you, holding you back from trusting in Jesus. We believe he really is who he claimed to be, and he died for your sins and he rose from the dead so that you can have eternal life as an absolutely free gift. We want you to have that. So please come talk to us. If you have chosen to believe that Jesus really is who he claimed to be, then here is my encouragement for you this week. I want you to spend some time over the next couple weeks putting yourself in Mary's shoes. I want, you to, I want you to actually, and you start today, start this morning. We're going to respond in worship here in a moment, so you can actually picture this. I want you to spend some time um, during worship and during quiet times this week. I want you to actually put yourself in that room. I want you to imagine that you're sitting around the table with Jesus. And I want you to imagine that you're having this conversation. It feels real important, um, real strategic. And then in walks this single young woman who pours out $50,000 worth of perfume on Jesus' feet. And you're just overwhelmed by the smell. You've never smelled anything that strong in your whole life. And then you look and she lets down her hair. All of a sudden you start feeling awkward, don't know what's going on. And you're watching, like, how is, what is going on? I want you to put yourself in that room and imagine, and I want you to ask yourself, would I have done that? Would I have risked that much money and that much ridicule for the sake of worshiping Jesus? Is he worth that much to me? I want you to think about how you use what's yours. Your time, your, your relationships, your ambition, your career, your money, your possessions. Do you put them at the feet of Jesus like Mary did? Do you take the stuff that you have and lay it at his feet because he is worthy? If not, then I want you to ask yourself, why not? Why am I holding things back from Jesus? What am I holding back from Jesus? I want you to spend time this week putting yourself in Mary's shoes and thinking about how you respond to Jesus. And we're going to start by doing that together here in just a moment. We're going to worship together. Sarah's going to lead us in worship as we put ourselves in that room and think about Mary's devotion to Jesus. I I want you to take this time and think very clearly about why Mary did what she did and if you believe what she believed and if you would have done the same thing. So let me pray for us and then let's respond to Jesus in worship together. Lord Jesus, we praise you and we thank you that according to your word, you are the actual word of God. You have all authority and power. You are the Lamb of God who gave yourself. You died in our place so that we could have forgiveness for free. And you are the Messiah, the one who fulfills all of God's promises to us. And you are the King who reigns now and forever and who gives us security and peace. And we praise you that all of that is true of you, Jesus. I think for a lot of us in this room, that's probably not new news to us. 
we've probably heard those titles or at least thought those thoughts at some point in life. So not a whole lot of new theology this morning, but but the problem is, Lord, even though we know that stuff is true about you, Jesus, it's really hard for us to live it out. It's easy to say these things about you, but it's hard to really give you our entire lives. It may be that we've never really laid ourselves completely at your feet like Mary did. We've never offered you all that we are and all that we have. And so we pray, Lord Jesus, that you would work in our hearts through your spirit to help us to see you like Mary saw you. We pray that you would help us to see how wonderful you are, how loving you are, how good you are, how powerful you are. And that as we catch a vision of that, a glimpse of that, that it would inspire us to give more and more of ourselves at your feet. I pray, Lord Jesus, that we would learn to worship you like she did. And that as a result, not only would you be glorified, but the people who look at us would be drawn to you. We pray that when they see us bowing at your feet, that they would be drawn to learn more about you and to give more of their lives to you too. We pray that ultimately, Lord, that through our worship, that more people in this community might come to know and worship you. We thank you, Lord Jesus. You you are worthy of everything we are and everything that we have. Help us to believe that and act upon that. And now we want to respond to you and worship, Lord Jesus, because you are worthy. In your name we pray.